This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In Hulu's adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale, it starts with the laying off of all women from their jobs. Then their bank accounts are frozen. And ultimately, they are stripped of citizenship, rights, and freedom, categorized by their ability to reproduce or not, and funneled into forced servitude of one horrible kind or another. Women are the targets of Margaret Atwood's dystopian America, of the state-sponsored domination and violence. And though everyone I know who watched it felt sick with how easily that could become our reality, it's still a fictional world. It's a figment of Atwood's imagination. But of course, that level of state-sponsored brutality and discrimination has already happened, has already been someone's reality. In Germany in the 1930s, the state passed law after law to isolate, disenfranchise, and break down Jewish Germans. It is shocking how easily the German parliamentary government chipped away at Jewish citizenship, attacking the livelihoods and cultural contributions of small groups of Jews before finally passing the series of laws known as the Nuremberg Laws, which stripped Jews of their citizenship, rights, and in the end, their freedom. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. This episode is part of our law series. We apologize in advance. When we record these episodes, we have a peanut gallery. Today, Sarah and Elizabeth are in the room. And and sometimes uh, they can't contain their giggles. And it seems those giggles are usually at the most inopportune moments. But whatever happens today, we hope you enjoy the episode. And if you haven't already subscribed uh, wherever you get your podcasts, please do so. Yes. And you can get all the show notes and full transcript of this episode at digpodcast.org. And, of course, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. All the places. We're at dig history, dig underscore history, and we'd love to connect with you there. You can also email us questions, comments, suggestions, love letters, etc. at hello at digpodcast.org. Just, you know, throwing that out there. Uh, oh, and we'd always appreciate a rating and a review, so leave us one of those, too. Uh, now let's get on with the show. I have to just say that's funny that you wrote out the word etc. because nobody does that. Ever. I didn't like the way it looks not. <sighs> oh my gosh. All right. The Nuremberg Laws were a series of laws passed at a Nazi party rally in the city of Nuremberg, which is in Bavaria, in 1935. 
the law for the protection of German blood and German honor, the law for the protection of hereditary health, and the Reich citizenship law are, collectively, the Nuremberg Laws. That these uh, set the legal precedence for the expunging of Jewish people from German and later European society. Nazi is a derogatory abbreviation of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or NSDAP, which was a political party that fell to the right of conservative German politics in the 1920s. Members of the NSDAP did not call themselves Nazis. Rather, this was intentionally used by critics and foreign powers because it had a variety of annoying connotations, including an association with backward Bavarian peasants. Uh, as their name suggests, the NSDAP initially started out as a supposed champion of the working German man with anti-bourgeois, anti-capitalist, and anti-big business goals. But by the 1930s, they realized they needed big business and capitalism to advance their political goals, so they were leaning into their other core values, German nationalism, anti-Marxism, and racism. You f***ing bitch. Racism. She's just anti-racist. She is all. very anti-racist. They held a very tiny percentage of seats in the German Reichstag or, or Parliament in the 1920s, throughout the 1920s. In 1924, for example, they won 3% of the seats in the Parliament. And in 1928, they won only 2.6% of the seats. So much winning! Yeah. <laughs> When the U.S. stock market crash triggered a worldwide depression, however, Germany was hit particularly hard. Millions were forced into unemployment, and the Weimar government, Germany's first democratic government established after the fall of the German Empire at the end of World War I, could not meet the demands from the social welfare system. Some Germans believed that the parliamentary system itself was to blame for the crisis. Some believe that the unfair burden of blame for World War I, which the Weimar government had to accept, was the cause. Both sentiments created resentment, fear, and a belief that the worst was yet to come. Adolf Hitler, leader of the NSDAP since 1921, and his party capitalized on these conditions to win more and more seats in the parliament. They promised to pull Germany out of the Depression, reclaim German cultural heritage, including the empire that was once theirs, crush the perceived communist threat, and make Germany a world power once again. Hitler and other NSDAP leaders were astute politicians. They tailored every speech to their audience. When addressing big business, they downplayed anti-Semitism in favor of their anti-communist and pro-empire values. They made promises to every voting bloc, from the farmers who needed agricultural protectionism to the soldiers who wanted to see the military rebuilt to its former glory. When the German chancellor called for a new election in September 1930, he miscalculated his coalition's popularity. The Depression and the Nazi electoral propaganda turned the tide in the Nazis' favor. They won a staggering 18.3% of the vote and became the second largest party in the Reichstag. The sitting president, who was essentially the sort of executive branch of the German government, just like in our system, uh, Paul von Hindenburg, appointed a new chancellor when the previous was unable to form a new coalition government. The new chancellor, Franz von Papen, 
Uh, he called for another election in July 1932, which increased Nazi seats to 37.3 percent of the of the of the seats, making them the largest party in the Reichstag. But as the Nazis gained seats, so too did the communists. In the July 1932 election, the communists took 14.3 percent of the votes. In a November election, the Nazis lost some ground and the communists gained some, jumping up to 16.9%. It was believed that if the communists won too many seats, they would end parliamentary democracy in Germany entirely. The Nazi leadership convinced President Hindenburg that they would preserve democracy and crush communism in Germany. And so on January 30th, 1933, Hindenburg appointed Adolf Hitler, leader of the NSDAP, as chancellor. This deal was made in a back room as a group of conservative politicians believed that with the popular Hitler in power, they could begin dismantling the parliamentary system themselves and turn Germany back into a conservative authoritarian regime. They were only partially wrong, of course, because Hitler and the Nazis outmaneuvered them and quickly turned Germany into a Nazi state. At the end of February 1933, the Nazi leaders falsely claimed that a fire at the Reichstag building was an attempted communist coup. This allowed Hitler to decree a state of emergency, a suspension of parliamentary activity, and the granting of emergency powers to the chancellor. Within a few months, the Nazis controlled cultural institutions, education, the economy, and lawmaking. They also received support from a majority of Protestant and Catholic clergymen in Germany. In this early period, the Nazi leadership quickly passed a handful of laws that would begin the systematic persecution of German Jews. Prior to the passage of the collective Nuremberg Laws, the National Socialists pushed through various measures targeting and isolating German Jews. State-sponsored harassment and violence began early in 1933, when the National Socialists were first successful in controlling the German parliament. Nazi leaders organized forced boycotts of Jewish businesses, encouraged mob violence against Jews, and ultimately, in, 19, by, in 1938, sent Nazi youths Youths. Youths. I can't help it. That's how my dad always used to say. Youths. Youths. Sent Nazi youths and agents into Jewish communities to destroy Jewish businesses and attack Jewish Germans in the night of broken glass or Kristallnacht. Anti-Semitic laws were passed as early as March 1933. Laws targeting the Jewish middle class were first. In April 1933, the Law for the Reestablishment of a Professional Civil Service went into effect, allowing for the immediate dismissal of civil servants on political grounds and for the compulsory retirement of civil servants, quote, not of Aryan descent, end quote. A similar law affected Jewish lawyers. Though these early legal statutes were mitigated slightly by the other political players like President Hindenburg, who was not yet supplanted by Adolf Hitler, they represent a steady march toward the Nazi goal of a racial state. Nazi leadership sought to remove Jews from all elements of German professional life to prevent Jews from attending university, the law against the overcrowding of German schools and universities, and to prevent Jewish doctors, dentists, patent lawyers, and accountants from practicing. 
The new Nazi state also implemented measures to eradicate Jews from cultural and intellectual life. Concerts and theater performances with Jewish musicians and actors were disrupted, and Jewish artists were dismissed from their jobs and commissions. As Hitler explained, quote, the immediate eradication of the excess of Jewish intellectuals from the cultural and intellectual life of Germany is necessary if justice is to be done to Germany's natural right to an intellectual leadership appropriate to its own kind, end quote. Jews from Eastern Europe, who'd been fleeing the Soviet Union since the end of World War I and settling in Germany, were the targets of the first citizenship laws passed in July 1933. These laws set a legal precedent for depriving Jews more broadly of German citizenship, an important development for the later Nuremberg Laws. In the immediate application, though, they deprived only the newcomers, denying only the Ostjuden access to German citizenship. So, Eastern Jews. In a speech from September 1933, Hitler lamented the government's inability to take immediate and total action against the Jews of Germany. Quote, He, the Chancellor, would have preferred to move gradually towards stepping up the rigor with which the Jews in Germany were treated by creating, first of all, a nationality law and using this as the basis for ever harsher approaches to the Jews. However, the boycott provoked by the Jews had necessitated immediate countermeasures of the severest kind. People abroad were complaining, above all, about the legalized treatment of the Jews as second-class citizens, end quote. With Hindenburg still in the role of president and the potential for political opposition to overt and mass anti-Semitic legislation, Hitler and the Nazis had to take a circumvential route to targeting Jews in Germany. The laws they passed to attack the Jewish middle class were only partially successful. For example, Hindenburg issued a limitation on the laws barring civil servants and lawyers. Any who'd been practicing before the start of World War I, or who fought in World War I, or whose fathers fought in World War I, were exempt. So some 60% of Jewish civil servants were able to continue to work. But these laws supported the the boots-on-the-ground war against Jews that the Nazi SA paramilitary was waging against lower-middle-class Jewish businesses, and which they had been waging since the 1920s when the party was founded. Perhaps more importantly, these early 1933 laws set up a quote-unquote, you know, scientific legal precedence for discrimination against German Jews. Nazi ideology was a mixture of traditional European anti-Semitism and modern eugenics. One of the more significant elements of these early 1933 laws is the way that it defined Jewishness. Per these laws, Judaism was not a religious classification. In line with modern eugenic and racist pontifications on Judaism, like that of Henry Ford or Adolf Hitler himself, Within these laws, Jewishness was classified as a nationality or race, something that could be passed from parent to child, a hereditary condition, let's say. Per those 1933 laws, then, even if someone was not practicing Judaism, they were Jewish by birth. Even someone baptized Roman Catholic, raised and catechized, and praising Jesus, you know, every day, um, if they had a parent who was Jewish, according to this legal classification, they were Jewish. 
The Nuremberg Laws would go further in these legal definitions, uh, identifying, for example, the Mischling, or half-Jew, as anyone with two Jewish grandparents as opposed to three, which was the sort of full Jew. Uh, Any Mischling married to another Jew or who lived in a quote-unquote Jewish community um, was subject to all restrictions and, by extension, loss of citizenship of a full Jew or anyone with three or more Jewish grandparents. So three or more. You're only going to have three or four. You're not going to have, like... Well, three, three or four. Three, three or more. Well, you know, blended you families. Step grandparents. Okay. Those count. Okay, okay. While the earlier 1933 laws were not as broadly applicable, they delivered that legal precedent to classify German Jews as racially different from other Germans. Insufficient challenges to the 1933 laws, perhaps because workarounds from sources like Hindenburg's exemptions left enough protected that they didn't challenge the new laws, left those layers of racial discrimination in place. So basically, if 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 shit had got real right away, there might have been more challenging of yeah. these laws in an earlier phase. Maybe. Yeah. Right. So the it's the the slowness that it happened that is so scary yes attacks on jews in specific professions weren't the only early laws targeting jews however in april 1933 the nazis passed a law forbidding the slaughter of livestock without first stunning the animals by an electric shock this additional step violated existing jewish kosher rules and proved quite an obstacle for practicing jews who kept kosher Some liberal rabbis responded by incorporating the electric shock into acceptable kosher slaughter standards. Others railed against it, arguing that if they started making allowances now, the standards would eventually cease to exist. One letter to the editor in a prominent Jewish newspaper warned the Jewish community to avoid the new kosher law. Lie. (laughs) New kosher. New kosher law. You really (laughs) lean into that. (laughs) New kosher lie. Quote, out of the contemporary Jewish situation, which is at once tragic as well as comic, a new Jewish word was born. New kosher. But what does it actually mean? Neither the Torah nor the Talmud mention it. But a Jewish restaurant near a resort in the Black Forest advertised their cuisine as follows. The meat fair is new kosher. Every day, new reports are coming in about new kosher changes in public businesses, Jewish institutions, and private houses in rural areas. For our readers who are unfamiliar with the meaning of a new of new kosher and will most likely not find a description in any Jewish encyclopedia, the following definition is offered: New kosher refers to meat of an anim- of animals which were stunned and then killed, with or without the proper blessings. In other words. It is meat that is not new kosher, but in both old and new terms, strictly uh, forbidden. And no rabbinic power can alter it from being forbidden. It seems almost cynical when Jewish restaurants use the non-existent term new kosher as advertising to entice ritually observant people. Those who are letting their consciousness be lulled into believing these words are deceiving themselves. And whoever is profiting by spreading these new, new words is destined to pile up guilt upon his soul, which, according to the doctrine of Father Proverbs, is almost unredeemable. They did not hold back. They did not. As imported kosher meat became increasingly more expensive, many, particularly lower-class Jews, had no choice but to accept the new kosher and risk the admonishment of the community. 
But like the only partially effective attacks on the professions, these little digs at the different segments of the Jewish population served to divide the community. Without a united front, Jews from all walks of life and ranges of faith were all the more susceptible to the broad sweeping laws that were on the horizon. There was a period of relative quiet, legislatively speaking, from late 1933 through most of 1934. The army swore allegiance to Hitler in June 1934, and then President Paul von Hindenburg died in August. At that juncture, Hitler dissolved the distinctions between the various leadership positions of the German government, making himself both the head of the legislative body as chancellor and head of the executive branch. He was effectively uncheckable as the Fuhrer, head of the Nazi party, chancellor, and president of Germany. He had the last word on all domestic and foreign policy initiatives, an extra-legal line of authority known as the Fuhrer executive or the Fuhrer principle. Fuhrer principe. Is that how you say it? Sure. Nazi foreign policy hinged on a belief that Germans were the superior European race, destined to conquer Eastern Europe and carve out additional living space for the Aryan race. Domestic policy focused on the elimination of racially inferior peoples, particularly Jews, but also people with disabilities, the Roma and the Shinti, and political enemies and dissidents. Excising these undesirables was of utmost importance to national security. To that end, the German government passed three key laws in September 1935 at a party rally in Nuremberg, Bavaria. The Reich citizenship law stripped Jews of their German citizenship and introduced a new distinction between Reich citizens and nationals. Certificates of Reich citizenship were in fact never introduced and all Germans other than Jews were, until 1945, provisionally classed as Reich citizens. So this is like a fiction. It's not like a real thing. Right. Um, According to Article 2 of the Reich Citizenship Law, uh, quote, a citizen of the Reich is that subject only who is of German or kindred blood, and who, through his conduct, shows that he is both desirous and fit to serve the German people and the Reich faithfully, end quote. The eugenic ideology of the Third Reich was evidenced most prominently in the law for the protection of hereditary health and the blood and honor law. The hereditary health law specifically outlined mental and physical disabilities that were to be targeted for removal from the Volk or people, German people's, gene pool. This law allowed the government to tag undesirables for forced sterilization, and then later um, that would be sort of the legal precedent for euthanasia. Anyone who suffered from a, quote, inheritable disease could be surgically sterilized if a doctor deemed it necessary to prevent descendants from inheriting mental or physical, quote-unquote, defects. The list of undesirable inheritable diseases, um, I'm going to go down the list right now. There's eight of them. Congenital feeble-mindedness, schizophrenia, manic depression, congenital epilepsy, inheritable St. Vitus dance, uh, Huntington's chorea, chorea, do you say, is it chorea or chorea? I always say chorea. I always did too, okay. Huntington's chorea, hereditary blindness hereditary deafness, and serious inheritable malformations. 
uh, and a separate bullet in the law, those subject to forced sterilization also included, quote, anyone suffering from chronic alcoholism, end quote. So essentially, the this list is a combination of new scientific medical diagnoses and then also sort of made up things. Right. Right. So people could request themselves to be sterilized. <laughs> yeah. If they if they wanted it, they would get it. Uh, or their parent or guardian could request it and receive that surgery for free. Doctors, as well as officials in charge of hospitals, sanitariums, and prisons could also recommend that an individual be forcibly sterilized at any time. This law was used extensively on patients in hospitals and asylums on those deemed mentally or physically unfit to potentially reproduce. Men, women, and children were taken into unnecessary and non-consensual surgeries for tube tying and vasectomies. These operations were, of course, performed by many doctors who believed as much in racial hierarchies and eugenic principles as the highest Nazi official. Whenever I talk about or learn about or teach about the Holocaust, I am devastated over and over again by what people can justify doing to, to other people. But then again, forced sterilization was not limited to Germany in the 1930s, and I think that's important to remember. There were forced sterilization laws and practices in a number of U.S. states, uh, the Netherlands, and elsewhere in the 1930s at the same time. The Czechs practiced non-consensual sterilization on over 90,000 women from 1970 to 1990. In China, we, we mentioned that in our right. one of our repro episodes that um, it was common in China as well. Yeah. Yeah. So while I'm continually horrified when studying the, the Holocaust, it's just as horrifying to remember that so much of what happens in the Nazi period that we deem unconscionable has happened or continues to happen in so many other places yeah and in the u.s as late as i don't know the 1970s or so i mean late you know in in our parents lifetimes at least mm -hmm. yeah no it's 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 unreal and i think and i think the the hardest thing that's the hardest to accept about this is that organizations that i support now mm -hmm. were in the past part of yeah. some of these problems right all right so that's kind of something we have to deal with and think about and, I don't know, maybe move on from? Or maybe not. Maybe never move on from it. So never I, I'm forget not it, certainly. Right. Um, <clears throat> the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honor, uh, passed in September 15th, uh, 1935, covered just about everything else in the quest to create distinct legal categories for Germans and Jews, and particularly for asserting that Jews could not be German. Much of this law was concerned with controlling sexual interactions between Jews and non-Jews. As the law preface noted, quote, entirely convinced that the purity of German blood is essential to the further existence of the German people and inspired by the uncompromising determination to safeguard the future of the German nation, the Reichstag has unanimously resolved upon the following law, which is promulgated herewith, end quote. Marriages between Jews and citizens of German or kindred blood are forbidden. 
Marriages concluded in defiance of this law are void, even if for the purpose of evading this law, they were concluded abroad. So you can't go somewhere else, get married legally, and come back. Right. Despite the obvious intention of this law, which would dissolve existing marriages between Jews and non-Jewish Germans, that potential was almost never enforced. Likely, the Nazi officials believed that to enforce the dissolution of existing marriages would create too much backlash. The law then applied primarily to individuals trying to get married thereafter, so they didn't tend to enforce it um, retroactively. Additionally, Section 2 of the Blood and Honor Law stated that, quote, sexual relations outside marriage between Jews and nationals of German or kindred blood are forbidden, end quote. Isn't, I don't know, did they, but, but sexual relations outside of marriage were just people didn't like them, but they, you, it wasn't legally wrong. Well, there are, that's not that shocking to me because I feel like sometimes like sex outside of marriage in a lot of places was technically illegal for a really long time. <laughs> I think that there, I mean, there are like conflicting messages coming out of the Nazi party, even at, at this time. So on the one hand, they were kind of pro have sex as long as you're making Aryan babies, even if it's outside marriage. Right. But on the other hand, they were also trying to court the religious officials. So they're also like, but get married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this allowed for the prosecution and public humiliation of young people who were caught having sex across the new racial boundaries. There are some horrific film clips at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum of young German women um, dragged through the streets of their villages, stripped naked, and then shaved by a crowd of German men because these young women had sex with Jewish men. So the law also forbade Jews from displaying the Reich or national flag or the national colors but allowed them to display, quote-unquote, Jewish colors, whatever the f*** that means. Um, that color is so Jewish. It's very Jewish. <laughs> per this law, Jews were markedly denied their German heritage. It demarcated real Germans from supposed interlopers. For those foolish enough to wave a Zionist flag outside their house, however, uh, this obviously gave the Germans uh, sort of... Uh, opportunity to identify Jews in addition to, uh, you know, the, the paperwork right. they had to so carry. Right, so it wasn't the... illegal. Right. They were like, yeah. Do that. Identify your, yourselves. Wave your Jew flag and we'll come get you. Yeah, like exactly. That. Okay. The law also stated that Jews would not be permitted to employ female citizens of German or kindred blood as domestic servants. Um, so this law, like, the sex, the flags, and the employing domestic servants. Like, this is all in one law. Yeah. It actually sounds like the stuff Congress tries yeah, to do like, today. Yeah. And this amendment, and that amendment, and this amendment, and that amendment. <laughs> and this little hidden clause here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so while very hodgepodge in the issues it takes on, marriage, sex, leg, waving, and the subservience, essentially, of Germans to Jews, uh, the primary function of this law was to create legal divisions between Jews and Germans. And it was, for the most part, very useful towards that end. These laws were discussed and passed into law at a Nazi party rally at the end of the summer of 1935. They went into effect in September 1935. By October of that year, the law for the protection of the hereditary health of the German people required that people obtain permission from public health authorities before they marry. 
How widely this was enforced depended on the region of Germany. Not all cities and towns had the medical infrastructure needed to approve every marriage application. Still, the Nazis succeeded in creating implementable and seemingly legal barriers for discriminating against Jews. And the buck did not stop there either. In November of 1935, the Nuremberg Laws were extended to other groups in Germany. Under that insidious guise of scientific eugenicism, the Third Reich implemented their racial hygiene initiatives with swift and devastating efficacy. As we've already noted, the Nuremberg Laws allowed doctors and hospitals to sterilize whomever they saw fit, or rather unfit, I guess, um, According to one estimate between 1935 and 19, or 1934 and 1945, between 300,000 and 400,000 people were forcibly sterilized. And that sounds, that's like a, that's just so many people. Yes. So it just like means nothing. It's like, oh, just that's tons of people. Yeah. But on a personal level, that has to be so traumatic. That's like the I entire mean, population of Buffalo. Right. So just imagine it's like an entire generation lost. Yes. Um, and it's an entire generation of people who may have wanted to have a family mm-hmm. who were unable to, and it wasn't their choice. Right. And that's just kind of sad. Um, the Nuremberg Laws collectively invited extensive commentary from lawyers, but almost exclusively lawyers who supported the regime. It was dangerous for Jewish lawyers to call attention to themselves. Per the 1933 laws, they could lose their right to practice if they openly criticized the regime's growing legal persecution of other Jews. So people were kind of looking out for themselves. Mm -hmm. Nazi and like-minded lawyers took advantage of the Nuremberg Laws to expand its anti-Semitic principles. It served as the base for a whole host of ways to deny Jews citizenship, German heritage, and their humanity. The anti-Semitic fervor that captured Nazi lawyers uh, was surpassed only by the judges. When trying cases under the new laws, some judges saw fit to create wiggle room for even more oppressive implementation of the law. When Germany's chief prosecutor suggested that the anti-miscegenation law be expanded beyond sexual intercourse to any and all sexual contact, the courts obliged. Jewish lawyers, by and large, however, remained silent on the Nuremberg Laws. In most cases, they were trying to find ways to prove that their clients were not guilty of whatever trumped-up charge had been levied against them. They didn't have the opportunity to make powerful political defenses to challenge the laws. They had to do their best to get their Jewish clients a fair trial and out of danger. While there was some conversation and debate within the Jewish community about the laws, as one would imagine there would have been, uh, there was almost no formal responses to the Nuremberg Laws. So when Max Hellman took on Hitler, he was a lone wolf. Even the lawyers for the Central Union of German Citizens of Jewish Faith, the sort of main Jewish defense or German Jewish defense organization, didn't call into question the legality of the Nuremberg Laws. And so this guy, Max Hellman, didn't expect to win when he did call into question the legality of the laws, but he did expect, most likely, based on our reading of the sources, to make a mockery of the Fuhrer and his penultimate power in the Third Reich. Some lawyers, like Berthold Haas, simply gave up. On the day the Nuremberg Laws were published, Haas gave up his practice of law in Berlin and had his name taken off the register of attorneys. 
In his own words, he'd spent his life and career, quote, devoted earnestly and joyfully to advancing justice and investing all my strength to upholding and strengthening German culture, end quote. Well, that's kind of sad. You think? Yeah. <laughs> um, the Nuremberg Laws denied him the right to celebrate his Germanness, so he emigrated. When the Nazis took power in 1933 and passed the laws specifically targeting Jewish lawyers and other middle-class professions, it had been a hard road simply just to stay in business. More Jewish lawyers in Germany remarked far more on the 1933 laws, which had immediate and specific ramifications for so many of their colleagues, than on the 1935 Nuremberg Laws. One-third of lawyers were forced out of the German bar. Is that what you would call it? The German bar. Okay. German bar of chocolate. And, I don't know, I just think... I, just, I was thinking, like, a German bar. Like they were oh, like they're hanging out at a German bar, eating pretzels and spitzel and... Um, mm, pretzels. Yeah. Um, and the remaining two-thirds... Uh, so... Yeah, so one-third of the lawyers were forced out of the German bar, and the remaining two-thirds found keeping and getting new clients increasingly more difficult. All faced financial hardship. Max Hellman, though, made a remarkable stand among Jewish lawyers when he sort of just called bullshit. Um, Hellman was born in 1884 and admitted to the German bar in 1914. He served in World War I, which ultimately saved his practice during the first culling of Jewish lawyers in 1933. He owned his own home, made a modest but comfortable living in an independent practice, and married a non-Jewish woman in 1924. His wife died in the spring of 1936, leaving him a widowed Christian convert living alone in Leipzig. He employed a housekeeper to look after things. Or he actually he employed two housekeepers to look after things. Hellman was kind of a sad guy. In addition to converting to Christianity just before marrying his wife, he was convinced that he descended from Arians who converted to Judaism in the 16th century because they were fascinated by the Hebrew language. Okay. Right. Um, he, and according to a letter he wrote Hitler just after the publication of the Nuremberg Laws, uh, his father hated Eastern European Jews and feared that they'd turn Germany Jewish and de-Germanize German Jews. Okay. Um, I don't know if he was a self-hating Jew. Um, he seemed quite comfortable with his inherent Germanness, viewing his Judaic parentage, um, his Judaic grandparentage as an invention of wayward ancestors. So they just became, went astray at some yeah. point. He even donated money every year to the Nazi charitable drive. He was on board with much of the Nazi plan for Germany. He just did not feel Jewish. And the Nuremberg Laws denied him any right to choose not to be Jewish. And yes, you heard correctly. He wrote a letter to Hitler in 1935. Uh, a year and a half before he would be arrested for violating one of the Nuremberg Laws, he wrote to express his frustration with the law. Like presumably many German Jews who considered themselves German first and maybe not even Jewish at all, these laws were an affront. Many wrote letters to Hitler because, per the laws of the Third Reich, Hitler had the power to provide exceptions to anyone he wanted to. That was the full and total power of the Fuhrer. And that ultimately would be at the crux of the wild and brash defense Hellman made in 1937. 
In the fall of 1937, Leipzig prosecutors charged Hellman. The woman he was employing as a housekeeper was a German woman under the age of 45 and thus ripe to make little Aryan babies. Per Section 3 of the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honor, Jews were not permitted to employ ethnic German women who fell in that reproductive possible category. So he was slated to go to court and to be prosecuted, and being a lawyer, he decided to run his own defense. The prosecutors called in only two witnesses, 53-year-old Frieda Goldammer and 34-year-old Gertrude Dietrich. Goldammer did the cleaning, Dietrich did the cooking. Sometimes she made his meals at her home and delivered them. Sometimes she made them at his house and then ate them with him and Goldhammer in the kitchen. Whatever the arrangements, she and Goldhammer confirmed that he did in fact employ her and so was in violation of the law because she was under 45 and Aryan. Prosecutors also suggested that since he was a lawyer, he must have been in violation knowingly which was thus evidence of intent. All told, compared to the sex crimes of the Nuremberg Laws, Section 3 of the Honor Code was a minor offense. Still, it would have ruined an already struggling man and his law firm, so he went on the defensive. The first part of his strategy was to challenge the facts of the case as stated by the housekeepers. His version of the story was only slightly different from Dietrich's, but made one key correction that she cooked all his meals from her house, and she only came to his house to cook potatoes for herself. <laughs> Can I cook my potatoes at your house? <laughs> yeah, that sounds dirty. <laughs> yeah, I know. It does, yeah. Um, this, of course, challenged the language of the law, which stated that Jews could not employ female citizens of German blood who were younger than 45 years old in their household. Booyah. <laughs> Mic drop. From this logic, Section 3 of the law was insufficient to prosecute. As Douglas Morris, who wrote, the historian who wrote about this case in his article, The Lawyer Who Mocked Hitler, brilliantly titled, uh, the, quote, Law lacked the words that would have been necessary for rendering him guilty, end quote. And since the language of the law was insufficient to make his circumstances illegal, the creator of the law was the only one who could clarify the intent of the law. So this is the thinking behind Hellman's defense. Uh, and because Third Reich law came first and foremost and last most from the body and mind of the Führer, Hellman issued a subpoena to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> That subpoena would require that Hitler appeared in court as a witness to the trial, which was scheduled for January 15th, 1938. Predictably, the local courts refused to issue said subpoena. Hellman tried to force the bailiff to deliver it directly, and when that failed to, he wrote another letter to Hitler, which he claimed was itself an official subpoena. You can't do you can't just like make a subpoena. No, but he's a um, lawyer, so he felt like he could. Yeah, I guess. Hellman insisted that Hitler appear in court in person. He intended to question the Fuhrer about the law. No surrogate would be appropriate. And Hellman took it a step further. He demanded that Hitler be held in custody of the court until the proceedings. It's the best. <laughs> like as like as a like because as a witness. As a witness, or, yeah. exactly. Pretty fucking ballsy. Yeah. I know. Yeah. He's like, well f it. And then he made mayonnaise. And then he made some mayonnaise. Is that a big one? 
Hellman. His name is. Oh. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Hellman's. Yeah. Understand. Oh my God, Hellman's man. Okay, whatever. I got it. I got it. Sarah's just like. I didn't know his last name. I oh. wasn't paying attention. You weren't <laughs> listening to my important conversation. But Hellman also gave Hitler a convenient alternative to appearing in court and being incarcerated in, in anticipation of the court appearance. Because the Fuhrer was also the supreme legislator, Hitler need only clarify the language of the law by publishing the missing sentence in the Reich Log, Law Gazette. On the day of the trial, Hitler did not appear in court. Shocking. What? Um, Hellman continued to pursue the first part of his strategy, challenging the assumption that he employed her in his household, but the court proceedings record suggests that he was quite agitated in court. He claimed that he'd expected Hitler to appear, but did not continue to pursue the subpoena when he didn't. At one point, he requested a recess to check the most recent delivery of the Reich Law Gazette. <laughs> He's, he's is, is a man obsessed. Uh, perhaps truly hopeful, but perhaps cheekily, uh, that the Fuhrer had responded to his request. The courts, unimpressed by his logical argument, convicted him. He got two months imprisonment with credit for time served. But things went downhill from there. Uh, his tactics won him a second trial and conviction for attacking the Fuhrer through the attempted subpoena. And to top it all off... Oh, my off, God. Like, the I Fuhrer know. can't handle a can't subpoena. Handle. Well, he is, you know, he's very fragile. Oh, my God. He's a fragile Nazi. Um, and to top it all off, he was disbarred on November 30th, 1938. Um, his disbarment was not a result of the Hitler business, but because of the fifth installment of the Reich Citizenship Law passed on September 27th, 1938, which banned all Jews from practicing law. After Hellman served his prison sentences, he was taken to the Dachau concentration camp. He died on October 13th, 1939, at Buchenwald. One important lesson, I think, is that there is a long game here. The Nuremberg Laws, which are so important to understanding German Nazi persecution of German Jews, were built on prior legal precedences. It is unlikely that one day a group will wake up and have their citizenship rights and freedom stripped away. It's, it's a much longer process in most cases, which can stretch over years and is built on layers and layers and layers of legal, social, and cultural exclusion and persecution. It starts out focused on a few subsections of the larger group and then expands from there. I used a few sources and articles from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum to write this episode. Their motto is never again. Obviously, that means specifically that there must never again be a Holocaust of Jewish people. But it also means never again the persecution of homosexual men and women. Never again the murder of people with disabilities. Never again should we, all of humanity, allow the existence of a regime on racist, xenophobic, nationalistic, eugenic ideas. Never again should we allow the state-sponsored violence and oppression of people based on their religion, race, sexuality, gender, ability, or anything else. So how are we doing with that promise so far? <laughs> how likely is The Handmaid's Tale? Some of the persecution of Jews was mitigated and scaled back at various points between 1933 and the start of the Second World War. As we've already noted, there was a sort of lull between the second half of 1933 and the death of President Paul von Hindenburg. 
Wary of international criticism, Hitler also toned down the violently anti-Semitic language and harassment of Jews just before and during the 1936 Olympics. But for the most part, the Nuremberg Laws and those laws that specifically targeted Jews from 1933 and the many, many more in the years following were deliberate actions to disenfranchise, dehumanize, and debilitate the German Jews. There were always inconsistencies and contradictions throughout the Nazi regime. Hitler's ramblings, those ramblings turned into policies, those policies put into practice, and practices that had no connection to policies or ramblings, vice versa, etc., etc., etc. That was true from the founding of the Nazi party to Germany's surrender at the end of World War II. But as random and bizarre as the content of the Nuremberg Laws seem, They were very successful in denying Jews both their citizenship and their humanity. And because the Nazis defined Jewishness on parentage, or rather grandparentage, they codified the perfect storm of cutting-edge eugenics with centuries of European anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yuck. So that's how I... A feel-good episode for y'all out there. Yeah, well, you know, laws are... Rarely delightful. Yeah. And I think um, something we will also see um, in the coverture episode that I'm doing is that sometimes the most effective laws are, are sort of weak laws that people can convince themselves are not, like, a big enough threat. Mm. Whereas, I mean, if Hitler in 1933 had just come out and been like, no, Jews can practice law... And you're not all citizens. Boom. Yeah, all at once. Right. There might have been more outrage and, and his base was a little less popular than it was after years of rule, mm-hmm. his rule. So that's the scary, that's so scary is that, that gradual. Yeah, the long game. It's yeah. terrifying. Right. But yeah, so we, we hope you enjoyed our episode. Um, and keep in mind, this is the third installment in our thematic um grouping of law episodes of law episodes yeah and remember you don't have to um listen to all of them in any order or even listen to all of them at all they're all standalone episodes but if you listen to all of them um you can see some some trends uh, some trends connections connections yeah and as professor lupin suggests after the dementors visit harry potter um, because the the Dementors suck your soul out, and the Nuremberg Laws should equally suck your soul out. Eat some chocolate. It'll actually make you feel better. <laughs> um, so thanks for listening. We hope to find you again. Make sure you've subscribed if you haven't already, wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. We love you. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Or NSDAP, which... I'm just trying to pause it. That's a derogatory. I'm gonna f- explain it, brah. <laughs> she giggles and... Ruin everything! <laughs> <laughs> No, they would fire me immediately because I'd be like, like, stop making those faces. Stop gesticulating in the background. You're the background. I guess. Or with or without. I don't know what the means. With or without this Jewish word. (laughs) 
Hebrew or without word. the proper blessings. Or yeah. I think it's blessings. Yeah, you're right. Maybe Elizabeth's lifetime. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. It was a joke. It was an old person. She's not that old. She's not that old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's not parent old. <laughs> Do I have to be more about it? Buchenwald. Buchenwald. It's probably Buchenwald, right? Yeah, Buchenwald. Though these early legal statutes were mitigated slightly by the other political players, like President Hindenburg, not yet supplanted, not yet supplanted by, not yet supplanted by Adolf Hitler. Supplanted? So, I know I can't. I, I can't say the word for some reason. See, thank you. You know what the word is. You just can't say it. I know. I know that the word yes, is supplanted, but I can't. It's. It's just. It's throwing me off for some reason. Um. And it was, for the most part, most fart. <laughs> fart. Most fart. 